from Luminary and Built It Productions, it's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, Jim Perdue, chairman, spokesman, and former CEO of Purdue Farms. We get 3,000 to 4,000 contacts a month uh, from consumers. Most of them complaints, and that's how we learn where we have problems. And, uh, and I love that. And we actually get on the call and we play the recording of how we screwed up their dinner. And then the plants are on there, and that plant manager has to answer the question about how they're going to fix it. How Jim Perdue took the reins of the family meat processing business, navigated changing consumer demands, and helped grow Purdue into a $7 billion business. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. A family business can be complicated, especially when it comes to succession. Sometimes there are bitter struggles about who will take over, and sometimes no one wants to take over which was the case with Purdue Farms. Jim Purdue wasn't that interested in becoming a third-generation head of the family business. He'd been around chicken coops his entire life, and he was interested in striking out on his own and building something totally separate, which he did pursue, as you will hear, so I won't give away what Jim actually decided to do. But as you probably guessed, given his title, Jim Perdue did eventually return to the family business and take over from his legendary dad, Frank. 
When Jim Perdue became CEO of Perdue Farms in 1991, it was primarily a regional, mid-Atlantic, fresh poultry processor, a company that sold legs and thighs and breasts to grocery stores. But consumer habits were changing. People started to get wise about natural and organic and antibiotic-free. And those consumer demands would end up driving Jim Perdue's strategy and come to define his legacy as he helped to grow Purdue into a national brand and a $7 billion company. Jim grew up in Salisbury, Maryland, where the family business is still based today. The family home was a block away from headquarters. Uh, in the, in the uh, summer, I would work in hatcheries, and then I started working as a maintenance guy over in the um, grain area, and, and I built a grain dryer one summer. I was an electrician, and then uh, I, would, I would spell flock advisors. Flock advisors are people who have about 30 farms, and they go ordering feed, checking on the baby chicks, checking on the management of, our, of the chickens. Uh, and if they go on vacation during the summer, which they did, then you'd have people fill in for a week. So I would go and fill in for a week, uh, screw up the entire system, hmm. and uh, they'd come back to a mess, you know. But uh, And then I have three sisters, and they, they all worked in the office. Um, you know, my mother was the uh, – she was the payroll clerk. It was really uh, – everybody pitched in and was part of the family effort. But when you were a kid, was, was Purdue still – did it feel like a pretty small business? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it, smelt, it felt very small. Um, you know, we had 100 people. Uh, total in the company, mm. you know, the, they'd play softball at lunch and in the weekends and that sort of thing. So it was a very, very comfortable family uh, situation. Wow. I read that like um, really up until the late 60s, like when you went to the grocery store, if you bought chicken, it would just say thighs, breast, you know, drums, whatever. It, it, there were no brands. And, and really Purdue kind of pioneered this idea that you were buying Purdue chicken. Well, as you said, all chicken was a commodity in the 60s. Uh, but my dad, um, and it was interesting, we still have his yellow pads of, of, uh, where he surveyed butcher shops. And at the time in New York City, he assumed butcher shops were the purveyors. They were the people that were experts in meat. And so he did this 25 questions of what do you want in a chicken? And they would say, well, I want you know, accurate weights, good ice coverage, because they came in ice pack, they were covered with ice. Hmm. Uh, you know, no no scratches, no bruises, etc. So he brought that back, and that's when he started saying, "Hey, we can differentiate our chickens better than anybody else's." And that's and that was in 1969, um, and so that was sort of the beginning of differentiating the product from the commodity uh, chicken that was out there. Hmm. Did you? Um, I mean, as a as a kid. Was there was there an expectation, at least in your mind, that that you would work for the family business one day? Was that it? Was that sort of an understood thing? Uh, when I went to college, that was clearly what what I was going to do, hmm. and and I think the expectation was that I would come back from college and go to work in the company, which I did. Yeah, and I la I lasted ten months and uh, decided that. This wasn't for me. Why, why, why is that? Why did you decide that? Well, I, you know, I'm 21 years old. Uh, I think this is like 19, 1973 around then. That's right, uh, 1973. So, you know, I was uh, – uh, didn't have a lot of confidence, hmm. uh, as a lot of young people don't have a lot of confidence. And when you're working in a business, 
that has your name on the door. You don't know whether you're getting a pat on the back because you did a good job or it's because, you know. um, And so the one thing I knew is I had to leave. Um, In the one area I was, I actually majored in biology Hmm. in college. So I loved uh, the idea of growing fish the way we grow chickens. Hmm. So aquaculture was my focus. And I went uh, to Massachusetts and got a... A master's in marine biology and then worked in a hatch oyster hatchery oyster hatchery down here for a year and then i went out to seattle washington and got a phd in fisheries working with salmon wow which which was really my goal was to get into the salmon business so you you really like thought i want to do something on my own i want to get into something completely different and you thought you were going to pursue a, a life of of of, of fisheries Exactly. Yeah. Hmm. I, I didn't leave just to go away for a year. I left for good. In fact, it was 10 years uh, I was gone. Um, <laughs> and uh, as my dad said, you're, the one thing I know is you're overeducated because he, he didn't finish college. So hmm. uh, this thing about getting a PhD, was, he, didn't, he couldn't understand why, that would, uh, why I would do that. <laughs> <laughs> right. After you got your PhD, because I think you got your PhD from the University of Washington, if I'm right. If I'm right. And, and you were... Working uh, at a fishery in in the Seattle area is that right? No, I just graduated okay. uh, in '83. Right. Um, there was a fateful meeting. In uh, my dad came out to Seattle, and uh, he basically said that he was going to either sell the company if I didn't come back. So that was an undue pressure. Wow. And um, and I was I didn't have any job offers, but except to teach at the school of fisheries. Yeah. And uh, and that was a. You know, I didn't want to teach. That's the one thing I knew I didn't want to do is teach. And so uh, so I decided at that point to come back. And how did you feel about that? Did you did you think, you know, I'm ready to come back? Or were you like, oh, well, I guess I better do this? I, well, I had mixed feelings. You know, on the one hand, I really loved the aquaculture business. But, you know, on the other hand, after 10 years, I had developed confidence uh, because I, I had published papers. My work I had done was well well appreciated by the industry out there. So for me, it wasn't as big a decision. For my wife, it was a big decision because she was working at the Seattle Art Museum. Mm. We had three kids out there in Seattle. So so it was tougher for her, for sure. Because yeah. the one question she asked me is, how many, is there a museum in Salisbury? Right. And I said, uh, City of twenty five thousand people, maybe, maybe not. But Baltimore's not far away. <laughs> All right. So, nineteen eighty three, you come back to the family business, and uh, what's your? What, I guess you 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 got kind of got a an entry level management job. Yeah, uh, you know the truth is, if I wanted to to be a senior vice president the day I came back, it probably would have been something he would have done, but. You know, I wanted to go back into the plants because I knew the plants are, are where things were really happening. Sure. Yeah. These harvest plants have, you know, on the order of 1,500 people. Hmm. So it's a it's a great proving ground to learn to manage. Um, and uh, and everything's different every day. You're working with a live animal and, hmm. and things things just are never, two days are never the same. So I wanted to go work in the plants and he really appreciated that. Um, and I worked there from 83 until... Uh, 88, maybe, something like that, and, mm. and became a plant manager at one of the plants here. And that's really kind of managing, I guess, supply chains and distribution because that's where all of the processed chicken is going out to to supermarkets. 
Correct. And and, and every day we, we call it the mix. In other words, if you were to sell 100% whole birds or you sent 100% cut up chicken into drums, thighs and breast. So every day you would you would change your mix uh, depending on the market, you know, where the market prices were, for example. Um, and so there was a lot of a lot of decisions about what to run each day. Yeah. You were still, I mean, this is in the in the mid-80s. I mean, you were still pretty much a regional mid-Atlantic chicken brand, right? I mean, at that time. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, we had about six plants at the time. So we were um, probably in the top 10, I would say, um, hmm. uh, in size, in a, in a number of chickens. Yeah. So I, I read that I mean, your dad, Frank, um, he kind of really made this company into a, a – Kind of a, a, a bigger player, um, but I read that he was a pretty demanding leader. Um, that his expectations were really high. And did you like how how would that level of demand kind of show itself with respect to the work that you did? Well, you know, I, I hate to say this, but he he was probably gentler with me than he was with uh, anybody else. Hmm. Uh, I think he was afraid, maybe he's afraid he's going to run me off because you know there's an old story. Dad said he only fired three people in his life, but he ran off about three hundred people uh, <laughs> right. just because he was so hard on them that they couldn't stand the pressure. So, hmm. but yeah, he 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 would call out people in a meeting. You know, twenty people sitting around a table, call one person out for poor performance, hmm. which, you know, that wasn't my style, but that was his style, and uh, and it was the normal style, I think, back, back in then, the yeah, seventies, eighties. You know, uh, uh, and and so we had a we had a group of leaders who really were a group of soldiers. You know, they basically got the orders from the chief, and then they were very, very good at executing those orders. Hmm. I wonder when you, I mean. As you kind of rose through the ranks as a leader, did you look at your dad's leadership model, which, as you say, I mean, that's a 1980s model, Jack Welch, you know, some of these legendary figures of the 80s, um, you know, that that was that was the way to be a leader, to kind of call people out and to be really demanding. But was there a part of you that thought, you know, I'm going to try and create a different leadership model when I become leader? Or was that was that really not on your mind at that point? You know, it's 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 fascinating, guy. That uh, it, it evolved, and we as a company in about eighty seven, eighty eight, or thereabouts, hired the consultant Phil Crosby, mm-hmm. and uh, and there's a book called Quality Is Free, and he had a school down in Florida, and it was a, it was called the Quality College, and he, we sent a thousand people for a week of training down there. My dad wanted to do that because he had heard from. Uh, a textile company, Millican, down in uh, South Carolina, that they had sent all their people there. Hmm. But really what they taught us was how to manage people better uh, in a more positive way, recognizing people, for example, which was not done at all here at the time. Hmm. And so that had a huge influence on me. It was transformational in this Hmm. company. It truly was. Uh, and, And what it did is it also, it changed a lot of people, a lot of faces of those senior people in the company left because they didn't like this idea of recognizing people, for instance. Mm. That it was like kind of a, 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 I don't know, infantilizing or something. Yeah. You know, Guy, I'll tell you a great story in the plant. Mm. We started giving good egg awards. This was a card in the shape of an egg, and you had to catch five people doing something right that week. That's how fundamental the change was. And so first, so I remember there was a guy who cleaned his truck out outside where the chickens come in before the next shift. 
and for the new guy coming on. Hmm. I gave the guy a good egg award. And what he gave him is a free lunch. Well, you know what? They weren't redeeming these. You know what they did with these good egg awards? Hmm. They took them home and showed them to their family because they were so proud that they got a good egg award. And so then we had to do two. We had to give <laughs> one for the lunch and we had to give a certificate to take home to put on right. the wall. Right. And that just told you how powerful this whole idea of recognizing people is. And so it, you see a couple of those kinds of things and you, you'll never go back again hmm. to an old style of management. So when you when you took, took the reins of the company in 91, um, tell me, sort of describe the landscape. I mean, you were taking over, I'm assuming, a, a pretty healthy business. Um, but at that point, did you already have ambitions for what you wanted Purdue to be? Or, or, or was it kind of a moment for you to assess and kind of ask questions and uh, get comfortable in the job first? Well, I'll tell you, Guy, luck has a lot of things uh, going for it. And at the time when we made the change, I became chairman and CEO, and the then president, Don Mabe, retired. Uh, and so the president replacing him was a guy named Pelham Lawrence, who was our CFO for 17 years. Pelham was a very enlightened, visionary, strategic thinker. I was not. So the, the joke is I'm his boss, but <laughs> the truth is I learned more from Pelham yeah. uh, about strategic thinking. And he started having strategic planning meetings. Huh. And, uh, and, that's, and that's also when we had a lot of changeover because his expectation was that when people have a problem, they solve their problem. They don't come to him with the problem. Yeah. And, uh, and so but whereas with dad, everybody had to go to dad when they had a problem. And then he would tell them what to do. That means when Frank Purdue made all the decisions, the risk is only in one place. Sure. Nobody, you, you couldn't fail because it wasn't your decision. But when Pelham said, you know, you got a problem, go back and talk to your people. They'll probably help you with the answer. And when you come up with the answer, come back and tell me what it was. So yet, no, I did not have a game plan when I became hmm. CEO. But I embraced the idea of strategic thinking so we started a lot of things when I came in and Pelham came in. Like we set our values out on paper. We uh, put our vision down on a piece of paper. Um, and we had state-of-the-business meetings throughout the company to share information. So it was, it was also a very big change in time of change in the business uh, when we transitioned from my dad and Don Mabe to myself and Pelham Marks. And you became the pitch man too. Like you started to do TV commercials. Yeah, my, my dad immediately came to me and said, look, I, my voice is starting to crack, uh, and so maybe maybe you should start thinking about doing this. So we did about six commercials together, maybe seven, and it was the most fun I think I've ever had is being on a shoot with <laughs> my dad. One, for example, was I'm sitting in my office in the commercial, and, and, uh, and I'm reading all these complaint letters. And I'm going, you know, I know we, in, we, we, we get a lot of complaints from consumers, but I don't remember my dad getting this many complaints. And then the next shot is of him at a mailbox, and he's unloading complaints that he's written into the mailbox, you know. Uh, and so that was just a lot of fun we had with that transitioning uh, as a spokesperson. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. I remember when I was a kid, uh, I grew up in California. So, um, you know, Purdue wasn't, wasn't in California at the time. Foster Farms. Foster Farms, yeah. And, uh, and I remember um, back then, you know, my mom, who was sort of a kind of a, an early adopter, or already in the '80s, was talking about antibiotics, and and she would go to Mrs. Gucci's and these stores and find, you know, antibiotic-free chicken. When did wow. that When did that start to become something that that really percolated to, in, into the mainstream? That you you when you started to hear about it from consumers. I think one of the most interesting meetings I have every month. I don't have now, but the CEO does, but I attend them because I love them, is our consumer call meeting. And mm-hmm. what we do is we identify the top complaints of our, we get 3,000 to 4,000 contacts a month uh, from consumers, mm-hmm. most of them complaints. And that's how we learn where we have problems. Um, and uh, and I love that. And we, we actually get on the call person on the call is recorded so we replay the recording of how we screwed up their dinner <laughs> and then the plants are on there and that plant manager has to answer the question about what are you going to do about it because we know exactly what plant and what time that product was produced and so they have to give a, an update on how they're going to fix it uh, but also part of those contacts is people asking questions about do you use antibiotics do you use hormones uh, how are your chickens raised do hmm. you care about them you know what's in your cooked products what kind of uh, what kind of chemicals you know so um, and some things you have to determine whether it's a fad or whether it's a serious issue yeah and I and I say that because back in the 90s it was a lot of talk about environmental packaging you know uh, recycling uh, yeah. packaging or packaging that'll deteriorate in a landfill, yep. which styrofoam will not. And it turned out that to be a fad. That wasn't serious at the time. Now, today, it's much more of a uh, an issue. 
But in 2000, we started getting a lot of people asking about antibiotics in Hmm. these calls. And it percolated up to the senior management that this is an issue we need to look at. So we started on a project. We called it Wheaties. um, And we called it Wheaties because at the time, we and everybody else gave prophylactically antibiotics every day in the ration. Uh, thinking that if you control the gut fauna, mm. they'll be more efficient at converting the feed to meat. Yeah, uh, that was the theory. It's called growth promoting antibiotics, right. and that's the way. So they they had a problem with that. So uh, I have always said, and I believe strongly, that a consumer will let us do to our chickens what they do to their kids. Uh, so, for example, they give uh, with with an ear infection, they'll give. Uh, They'll give uh, amoxicillin, I think, yeah. if I remember the antibiotic. Uh, but it's only for three days, four days, you know, uh, prescribed by a doctor. And then it's gone. They don't give it every morning in their Wheaties. And so we started working on how can we get rid of our antibiotics. And, uh, and it took us literally 10 to 12 years to do <laughs> it. And what we found, guys, the thing you always find, yeah. it doesn't make any difference. It doesn't grow slower if you don't use antibiotics. Um, it was just one of these, you know... Uh, I hate to say it, not, it may not be appropriate, but the wives' tale, you know, that that somehow enhanced something. Hmm. Uh, the hardest place to do it was in the hatchery where the baby chicks are hatched. To, to, prov- to stop uh, giving antibiotics. Yes, because when we give – now, vaccines are okay, and consumers have no problem with the vaccines. Why? Because they give vaccines to their kids. So we gave two vaccines to chickens in the hatchery, uh, and, and, and one of them is given by punching a hole in the egg the last week. Before they uh, before they hatch, and the embryo absorbs the vaccine, mm-hmm. and so when you poke a hole in an egg, that's not good because now bacteria can get in that hole. So we we would use genomycin, which is a human antibiotic, in that hole to prevent the chick from getting a bacterial infection. But so what we had to do is we had to clean up our act in the hatchery. We had to clean the eggs, get rid of the bacteria. So we did things like all the vaccines, instead of just mixing them on the floor, they were done in a in a hood like you did in chemistry class in high school, uh, which is much more hygienic. And then uh, every egg that came from a farm had to be wiped with a baby wipe. And so we hmm. were, I mean, we were using more baby wipes because we're due 13 million baby chicks a week or eggs a week. Uh, and we were wiping every one of them to get bacteria off. So so really, I think we were using antibiotics in the hatchery to cover for dir- a dirty system. Yeah. And that took us a long time to clean up that that part of our, our business. But it sounds like it really was a response to consumer demands. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, given that you grew up around chickens your whole life, you grew up in, you know, in, in, in an agricultural family, you probably, I'm assuming, you probably just thought initially, what's a big deal? We've been doing this forever. This is totally safe. Absolutely. I, you know, I, like I told you, I was a flock advisor at one time and I could take uh, antibiotics to the farm. Today, a veterinarian has to prescribe on a piece of paper antibiotics and how long it's given uh, and how it's given in the water for three days, whatever it is. But back then, it was just helter skelter. I mean, mm-hmm. there just was not much control whatsoever. And 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 like you say, the one the one thing my my dad taught all of us is you better listen to the consumer. If mm-hmm. you don't listen to the consumer, you will die. So you need to listen to everything they have to say, and you better uh, take it to heart. And and so that's another reason why we still listen yeah. to the consumer here. But I mean, it sounds like in that case, a consumer kind of saved your butt because. You, I'm assuming, like many people in the industry at the time, were maybe a little resistant to this idea. Um, 
it took some change, I think, uh, within the company. I think people understood that we needed to do it. Uh, and when we made the decision to do it, we actually made an announcement in Washington about new antibiotics. Uh, and we became the pariah of the industry uh, because now they knew they were going to have to change. They have to so, do the same thing. Yeah. So Purdue always has had a reputation of being a leader. My, you know, my dad was hated by a lot of companies because, you know, when he started talking about quality, they had to they had to do the same thing and they didn't like that. Uh, so we like being the leader. In fact, whenever we make a decision and I get a complaint from a co- competitor, I know we made the right decision. Hmm. Um, so that's one of my barometers <laughs> about either that or, for example, a commercial. If we do a commercial and it's hard hitting and I get a lawsuit from Tyson, I go, fantastic. I love it. Bring them on, you know. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, I mean, I'm curious about how you kind of started to look at at the next thing. I, I mean, I think it, it sounds like you were guided by consumers and, and consumer reactions and, and feedback um, because you made a huge leap into, into natural and, and organic foods with the purchase of Coleman Natural Foods, I think, in, in 2011. Um, and that was, I guess, a big change for Purdue, right? Because all of a sudden you you own this natural and organic brand. That's correct. Um, And then what we found out when we bought Coleman is that these organic chickens were very different. They they tasted different. We do a lot of flavor uh, Mm. profiles in our uh, innovation center. We have a a very sophisticated hedonic system Mm. of measuring things. And and the meat was more tender. And we were going, how can that be? Why are these organic chickens better? I mean, why do they provide a better eating experience? So we started getting into the details of that. And, and there's a lot of variables. That's the problem is controlling the variables. You know, they're, they're less densely grown. They have access to the outside. They're much more active. Hmm. And so we started measuring activity, believe it or not, with strobe cameras and things. Found out that our chickens just do three things, and most chickens in America, they eat, sleep, and, and, and what we call mess around, which means spar with each other hmm. or something. And most chickens, it's dark. You can't even see inside the chicken house. The farmer has to wear a a headlamp in order to work in the middle of the day because it's a blacked out house. Hmm. Uh, So we decided, you know, we started making all these changes, uh, opening the houses up, putting in windows. We've paid now for about half of our houses to be windowed again so that there's light, natural light in there. About half of our chickens now go outside. Uh, even though they're not organic. Mm. Uh, all organic chickens have outside access. Mm-hmm. But we said that's such a good thing. We, we want all of our chickens to have outside access because, it again, it makes them more active. That messing around measurement uh, is is double what it used to be because we think it's, a, it's healthier for the chicken and it produces a better product. All of these things put together. And, for example, on, on antibiotics, uh, or, you know, they can't use antibiotics just like we can. We found out that using herbs rosemary uh, uh, I can't remember there's two or three that they were using it, it in order to help the gut deal with some of these uh, bad uh, bugs you know mm-hmm. that are in the in the gut mm-hmm. um, so it's a, it's a tremendous amount of learning once we got into the organic business this is a I mean the Meat processing business, the chicken um, poultry business is a complicated business because there's a lot of moving parts, let's just say filled with landmines of things that could go wrong. Um, I mean, you you have, um, you know, Purdue, like many other chicken processing companies and, and, and poultry companies has been criticized for a number of things. So let me let me ask you about one of the things that 
you know, Purdue got criticized for, um, which is, I think around 2015, there was a video that came out, um, a, an animal a welfare group called Mercy for Animals put out a video showing abuse of chickens in, in some of your facilities. Yeah, it was, it was a terrible video. Yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, it was not pleasant at all. Right. But you actually addressed it head on, right? You, you, you said, hey, let's, let's talk about this instead of hide from it. Um, Tell me a little bit about what happened and, and, and the thinking behind that decision. You know, the, uh, you know, we've had videos prior to then. Sure. And, and our reaction then was the same thing. Those people shouldn't be on our farm. They could bring in bacteria to the farm. Uh, that's, this isn't right. And, uh, and so that was the prevalent thinking. We had one person, actually it was the guy from Coleman, hmm. um, who, was, who was on our senior management team. And when we asked the question, how are we going to respond to this, he said, well, did we know this was going on? And we said, well, no, of course not. We would have done something. He said, well, then let's thank them. Thank the company that exposed the video. Absolutely. There was sort of a silence in the room. Hmm. Everybody said, what are you talking about? He said, well, if they found it, and we had, let's, let's thank them. So, so we did. We huh. called them and said, not only we appreciate what you did, but would you mind coming up to our corporate headquarters? We'd like to talk to you. But you called Mercy for Animals. Mercy for yeah. Animals and Compassion in mm -hmm. World Farming and Compassion in Killing, mm -hmm. I think, were the three. Or no, HSUS. I'm sorry. Yep. HSUS was yep. the third. And uh, and so they came up here, and it was a very tense um, kind of standoff. First of all, probably a lot of them are vegetarians. Well, of course. Yeah. You know, and uh, and so – but. But we had a we had a dialogue, mm -hmm. and they told us what they thought, and we told them what we were trying. We we felt like we were headed down a road that they might appreciate, yeah. and they they did. They said, you know, you need to tell people some of these things you're doing about more space, light, uh, you know, what you're doing for the animals. You know, you need to go out and tell people, and uh, so that evolved into the next year we had an animal care summit. And we brought in not only those three, but about four others. And so we had, you know, five or six or seven animal care groups around the U.S. Uh, come in here, along with academia that, that from England about animal welfare. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was fascinating. And we said, this is what we're going to plan to do in the next five years. And they applauded us. And so we've now had our, I think, uh, four animal care summits um and we're it, and actually i think it's just a great relationship and it, it even evolved guy into the point where the the lady from um, compassionate world farming called me one day and said would you mind coming to england hmm. that's where their corporate headquarters are and talk at our annual world conference <laughs> i said okay as, as long as you say it's safe i'll i'll, I'll come because now i'm going to be speaking in front of 500 vegetarians uh, <laughs> Right, and so the title is: Can an animal rights group and a and a big meat company develop trust? That was the title, and we talked about how it evolved into the point that I do trust her. Uh, I believe in what she believes in. Uh, the only problem with that whole meeting is every break there was hummus. That was it. Uh, <laughs> so, it, so at the end of the day, my wife and I. Uh, went out. They do have Five Guys Burgers in uh, England, in London. So we went out to a Five Guys oh, and got man. a burger and, and said, uh, you know, I'm sorry. I, I, yeah. But, you know, it even involved, evolved into, uh, you know, uh, she and others said, why don't you make some, you know, vegan items? Hmm. And so that really is what launched. I, I credit them with helping us launch our Chicken Plus uh, Chicken Nuggets, which hmm. is uh, it's, it's vegetables and meat yeah. in a chicken nugget. 
So it's it's been a very fascinating. I, I t- tell you guys certain things in your life that you uh, you go, wow! I'd never mm-hmm. thought that I'd be in London, England, talking to the world compassionate world farming. Jim, you know, I, I'm curious. I mean, uh, full disclosure: I, I eat meat, I, I eat lots of chicken, and and I aspire not to. And 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 part of that is because. Uh, for health reasons, but also for animal welfare reasons. I really do think that one day I won't eat it. And I I did an interview about a year ago with um, Pat Brown, the founder of Impossible Foods. And he believes that that we can produce meat from plant sources and that that is where we we will be headed towards as a species. Now, Meat consumption is up, right? More people uh, living uh, middle-class lives in Asia and Africa are eating more meat. So there's no question that that meat consumption around the world is up. But it's also, and you know this, um, you know, livestock production particularly is really bad for the environment over time. And I wonder when you think about the future, I know that you're producing, um, you know, sort of these hybrid chicken nuggets with a little bit of, of meat, animal protein and, and some vegetable proteins. But... I don't know. I mean, do you th- what do you, what do you make of this idea that in the future you could still produce meat that tastes and looks like meat but from plant-based sources? If if that's what the consumer wants, we will provide it. Mm-hmm. We we are not, you know, our vision is to be the most trusted name uh in 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 food and agricultural press, products. So trusted is the key word yeah. for us in our vision. Um so I trust the consumer, and if they say that's what you need to do, then we'll do that. You know, I, guy, I will say that the number of chickens that we harvest each week has not changed over the last five years. So it's not like we're trying to grow more and more chickens. Mm-hmm. What we are growing is more beef, more pork with Nyman Ranch. Yep. Uh, and they're teaching us at Nyman, for example, this whole thing about rotational agriculture, uh, you know, where their pig field becomes the cornfield next year mm-hmm. and the and the pig field is in the old cornfield and they are rotating this this and so this is also a concept in agriculture that is that relates a little bit to your point about what's good uh, environmentally and not good environmentally um, so I think there's a lot of room out here to uh, to do both you know to produce uh, protein but also to do it more environmentally friendly and of course chicken is uh, more environmentally friendly than than say beef, yeah. just from the statistics. But still, it doesn't mean there can't be important things done. Yeah, Jim, the the most delicious chicken I ever ate in my life. I remember it um, came from a very very small farm in Virginia called Ayrshire Farms, run by a woman named Sandy Lerner. She actually is a founder of Cisco, and runs a small little farm where she raises heritage breed chickens and uh, sells them in a shop there. And um, I roasted it with some salt, and it was incredible. It was the most amazing. But it, it, to me, it speaks to this idea that you can't actually do that at scale. You can't produce that level of quality at scale, or, or can you? What do you think? Oh, I think you can. Uh, and, you know, our, our newest endeavor is uh, growing chickens in pasture. Under the, under the Purdue brand, or is it, the, is it a different, different brand? Now, see, I can't tell you all okay, the I got secrets, you. Okay. Okay. You know, but, uh, but, but I can tell you this. Um, at one of these animal care summits, we had a guy from uh, Canada, a professor up there talking about omega-6s and omega-3s mm-hmm. and how you influence the omega-6s and omega-3s with what the chicken is eating. And so we acquired a company here uh, this past year that um, is a pasture company. And um, 
And I think what we're finding is that we have a chicken that will compete with her very well. They definitely taste different, okay? But I think when you add to that, um, it's, it's kind of like, um, you know, the, the lady from Compassionate World Farming said, you know, these are the way we like to raise, see you raise chickens is pasture, this sort of thing. But your job is to figure out how to do it economically. And she's exactly right. And that's what we're working hard on right now. Yeah. Right now, we are in the middle of the greatest global um, health and, and economic crisis, uh, probably in living memory for, for anyone, right? And, um, and it's been particularly hard um, with respect to the meat and poultry industry, right? I mean, there have been meatpacking plants where people have gotten sick, and this is a challenging time, right? Because consumers are still demanding these products. Um, I mean, I'm still buying chicken, right? So... How do you how do you do that safely? How do you how do you make sure that the people who are processing our chicken um, are safe? Yeah, you know, there's an old adage: uh, "You've seen everything." At my age, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I never saw this coming. That's for yeah. sure. And uh, and I will tell you, it was a journey of learning. Um, uh, and it, it, every day we would learn something new, either from the CDC or from our own experience. I mean, we had operations, our biggest operation had less than, I think, 20, you know, positives. And yet we had operations with three or 400. And, uh, and of course, we're somewhat lucky because most of them are very rural areas. But uh, even contact tracing, we the last few weeks, you know, of the when we had a, uh, some positives, we, we started using that. And it really was amazing. Uh, we had an operation in Tennessee that there were 40 people that lived within two blocks of each other near that operation. And we found, and by contact tracing, they, they discovered that most of our their, their positives were coming out of that area. So we called all 40 associates and said, please stay home. We will pay you for two weeks to stay home. And, uh, and it, it solved the problem. We, we put in the temperature guns as fast as we could uh, in, in very early March. Um, and then we, we, we have wellness centers at every facility where a worker can come off the line, see a doctor in the community in our wellness center right there, mm. uh, and then go back to work and, and they don't lose any time. Those wellness centers became very valuable during this COVID-19 because the nurses and uh, in that uh, center would not only uh, screen people, but they would act every day by calling and contact tracing and we we actually felt like our folks were safer uh, in that environment. You know, once we had all the plexiglass up, workstations, um, you, you know, taking doors off hinges so nobody touches a doorknob. Mm-hmm. But where we found it was a bigger issue is when they left, they either, if they commuted, in other words, a lot of people in a car, mm-hmm. that was a problem. How they live in their house, you know, if there's multiple families, that turned out to be a big issue. And so that's where we needed help from the uh, social services of the state, and we and we encourage them to go out and help communicate. You know how how you live in a in a situation where you're trying to prevent the spread, um, and try because they're the most important. They are the most important. We we put people at the number one goal in our company. They and our truck drivers, um, you know, all those fo- unsung heroes um, is is really what they are. Jim, when you think about your your leadership journey, do you think that you you had some of those skills and abilities 
from from the beginning, from the time that you know, from your childhood, or do you think that you really actually learned how to become a leader? That's it's, it's a very good question. You know, I I mean, there's a lot of ways where I did learn to become a leader. Like I said, when I did that transition, um, you know, that was I was so lucky to go through that quality college and the change in this company's style of management. You know, between my dad and myself, because we're very different people. I, I, I could never manage the way he managed. Um, you know, and for example, uh, he worked 18 hours a day. Hmm. He would come home, have dinner, and he'd be back in the office till three in the morning. Uh, and so we weren't very close uh, because of that. And, and that had an indelible impression on me. So so when I was raising my kids, I, I said, weekends are mine. Uh, don't even come near me. Uh, so I coached soccer, for example, for all the kids and spent a lot of time uh, with them. And I think it was partly because that was something that I know was missing. Hmm. And it resulted in a bad marriage between my mother and he, hmm. uh, which it often does. So, hmm. so I, again, I, that was, uh, I think you, uh, I think you transition. Um, and, uh, but you have to be true to your, your own style. You know, uh, people see through that immediately. You know, if you're trying to be somebody you're not, you're not genuine, you're not real. Um, you know, for example, I'm probably more like my grandfather than I am like my father. So I, you know, when I was uh, assuming leadership as a CEO, saw a lot of people say, were they big shoes to fill? I said, well, I didn't try to get into them, you know, <laughs> so. <laughs> That's Jim Perdue of Purdue Farms. By the way, remember when Jim moved his family from Seattle to Salisbury, Maryland? Well, Jan, Jim's wife, did end up finding meaningful projects through the arts education program at the Walters Art Gallery in Baltimore. She also became a pretty accomplished watercolorist. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. The music for this episode was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary and Built It Productions. Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today.